Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hi, Mike and Tamar. I'm hoping you might cover vertical farming on an upcoming episode. The whole concept is a little far-fetched for me, but I've heard a lot of excitement around growing food in these tall indoor farms instead of on traditional farms that take up a lot of land. I guess I'm wondering if vertical farms actually cut the environmental impact of food. Like if I buy vertically grown produce, am I making a difference from a climate change perspective? Curious to know what you think. Thanks. Okay, Tamar. I think most of us think of farming as amber waves of grain, right? Sprawling across the rural heartland for thousands of acres. And vertical farming is just like weird, right? You can have a this plant factory in downtown Newark in a building that goes up instead of out. Maybe it'll help if you could talk a little bit about what a vertical farm even looks like. Absolutely. And those amber waves of grain are inexorably horizontal because each plant needs access to the sun. But the whole point of vertical farms, as you call them plant factories, is that we bring those plants indoors. And instead of using the sun, we use LED lighting that is optimized to make those plants grow and can actually be optimized for nutrients or flavor. And when you bring them inside and use artificial light, you can stack them up. So that same one acre of land, which can only grow one acre of crops out in the real world, can grow 10 acres or even more because you can stack things up, hence the vertical. You know, I think one reason that the listener has been hearing so much about vertical farms and so much money is going into all kinds of indoor farming is that it's just such an alluring solution to all the problems of outdoor farming. I remember what this guy I met told me. I, I met him at the University of Illinois. He was this sort of hipster dude who ran their greenhouse. I'll never forget, he had this one of those hoop earrings that you can actually see through the earring, so it kind of like pulls the lobe open. And he was showing me they were doing all this really cool stuff in the greenhouse, and they had all these beautiful-looking plants. And then right behind it, there were all these fields. And I said, oh, well, you know, well, how's it going you know, outside in the field? And he looks at me and he goes, Dude, field is chaos. And I think that's the attraction, right? Because Mother Nature is mean, right? You, you might be growing your crops for six months and it gets wiped out by a flood or a drought. Um, you have to use all these nasty pesticides because there are all these pests around. You've got to use fertilizer that runs into the environment because you have to help things grow. You know, it's not good for labor. Uh, it's really hard work. You're shipping food all over the country. And as the listener said, Farming has this incredibly huge land footprint. That's why agriculture is the leading cause of deforestation. And vertical farming, it's like this answer to every one of those problems. There's a reason they're called controlled environments, because nobody wants chaos. I have an oyster farm. I know what chaos can wreak. And so there's a lot of appeal to that. But there's this little piece they leave out. And most of the time, it's a deal breaker. Yeah, it's such a bummer. So in this episode, we are going to talk about that bummer. But we'll also talk about some of the cool things that we can learn about vertical farming and things that vertical farming can teach us about the rest of farming. I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. 
So before we look at the trade-offs, it might help to actually understand a little better how these vertical farms work. For starters, for the most part, there's no soil. So all of the nutrients get delivered to the plants through water. Sometimes the roots are in water and the fertilizer goes in that water, and that's hydroponic. Sometimes the roots are in the air and they get misted with the water that has the nutrients, and that's aeroponic. And the pluses are totally legit. Uh, Most of the time, you don't need fertilizer because you're not fertilizing the medium the way you are when you're fertilizing soil. The nutrients are going directly to the plant. And because it's a controlled environment, for the most part, pathogens don't get in. And, you know, in a perfect world, they don't get in at all, but it's not a perfect world, so occasionally they do sneak in. So the big benefits are cutting back on water to the tune of 90 or 95 percent, cutting back on fertilizer and pesticides nearly 100 percent, and growing everything in the water and the air. So, you know, the dirt is out of the loop. And as you said in the introduction, those address real problems. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously skeptics about this stuff. You know, we've already given away that spoiler alert. But let's give vertical farming its due, because in many ways, it's kind of awesome, especially since I think I've sort of established myself as the kind of, you know, techno-optimist. I mean, this is incredible technology. Vertical farming is a tech play. I mean, it's robotics, it's artificial intelligence, it's drones, it's machine learning. You know, some of the guys running these these companies, they came from nanotech, fintech. You got investors like Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt from Google. It's it's really amazing what they're doing. Um, You know, I think historically there's been this incredible divide between food production and food consumption, right? Where you have to, you grow it over here and you bring it all the way over there. Now here you've got this kind of weird magenta lit factory in the middle of a city. That's cool. And like you said, it it really does solve a whole bunch of problems. I mean, starting with (laughs) the basic problem that farming is really risky and climate change is going to make it even riskier. So you don't have crops out there for six months that can get wiped out by a flood. You get an indoor crop, you can get one every two weeks. So the yields are just unbelievable, sometimes 400 times per acre what you'd get from an outdoor farm. And of course, it's reliable. Doesn't matter if it's raining outside. Doesn't matter if it's really hot outside, which you're going to have a lot. Then, of course, we've got the land problem, right? I mean, farms now sprawl across two-fifths of the earth. (laughs) Well, just like, you know, living downtown is anti-sprawl, farming downtown is anti-sprawl. You know, we're talking about using less than 1% of the land. As you mentioned, pesticides, fertilizer, all that pollution, you've got these automated, circular, totally contained systems where you don't waste anything and nothing runs off into the environment. That's incredible. Also, you know, some people complain that there aren't enough workers, right? That it's sort of, uh, you know, this, this is just all robotic. But farm work is really hard. That doesn't get emphasized enough in this conversation. I've had an oyster farm for 10 years. I've done a whole lot of farm work. And oyster farm work is some of the grueling farm work because oyster farms are barely mechanized at all. And farming oysters is like farming rocks. You just bring heavy stuff from place to place. 
And when we think about the foods that have the aura of the things we should be eating more of, um, vegetables, lettuces, these are the foods that it's really hard to, first of all, get people to pick. But second, there's all kinds of problems with farm worker conditions and compensation. These are the foods that are fueling the complaints about the farm worker situation. I think that's right. I mean, you look at these, not, not only the vertical farms, but even these sort of outdoor greenhouses that that are starting to pop outside major cities, they are unbelievably mechanized. Every squirt of fertilizer, every mist of water, it is all done automatically. It is all tracked. It is all monitored. They have every data point. It's really incredible. I think the one other thing we should mention, right, we did a whole episode about how local food is overrated, but... It really is kind of crazy to ship lettuce all over the country, right? It's mostly water, and it's all grown in Visalia or, you know, Yuma, Arizona, and so you're taking it all the way to Maine in a truck. You know, that's really kind of crazy. You've got you've to keep it cold. You, have to, you end up having to breed lettuce to stay fresh longer instead of to taste really good or be really healthy. And so it makes sense in an intuitive way. It makes sense in a transportation way. It makes sense in a lot of visceral ways. But all of these things that you just talked about, the climate control, the drones, the mechanization, they all require one thing, and that thing is energy. And yeah, you have to control the environment, but part of what you're doing when you bring plants indoors is that You're switching your system. So instead of turning a unit of energy from the sun into a unit of energy for human food, you're taking a unit of energy from the grid and turning it into a unit of energy for human food. And let's remember that a kilowatt hour and a calorie are both units of energy. They measure the same damn thing. And if you're going to get calories out, you have to have calories in. And replacing the sun is a hard thing. And so I was at the Aspen Ideas Climate Conference in Miami Beach a few weeks ago, and I was on a panel and we were talking about climate solutions. And we were talking about vertical farms. And I started talking about, you know, the energy needs and how difficult that was. And another person on the panel said, well, you can power them with solar, which theoretically you can. But it's hard to wrap your mind around just how much solar you need to power a vertical farm. And, you know, the calculations that I saw at the time when I was writing about this a couple of years ago, and, you know, some a lot of the vertical farm guys aren't entirely forthcoming about their energy needs, so it's a little difficult to do this. But an acre of lit crops needs about five acres of solar panels. And so if you have a vertical farm that has 10 layers of plants, you need 50 acres for a one-acre warehouse. And obviously, one of the advantages is you're in downtown Newark. So where are you going to get the 50 acres? You know, you know it's funny. I uh, I actually was just last week talking to a clean tech investor who has put some money into indoor farming. But it was sort of, 
you know, he's ready to give up on it. And the, basically the problem was the energy. And what's funny is we did some math together based on some, uh, some stats that he had from a greenhouse that he's got, he's got running in West Virginia. And we came out with very similar calculations, probably five to 10 acres of, of solar panels for one acre of basically farming. Um, one incredible stat we also came up with is that if you used all of the renewable energy that we have in the United States right now, so that's every solar panel, every wind turbine, comes out to more than 400 gigawatts, you could power vertical farms that could reliably grow 5% of the U.S. tomato crop. And that's that's like the big picture. But zoom in to one of those those shipping container gardens, like freight farms and things. That shipping container uses the same amount of electricity in a day that the typical American household uses in a week. We're talking about a lot of power. And I think it's crazy, right? Like, sure, yeah, you, I guess you could use you could use solar and, you know, then we'll just have to build more, I guess, for everything else. But like, you know, why replace the sun with solar panels to then power LED lights, right? We've got the, the sun. To it's that, really though, good. <laughs> but the answer to that is all of those other things. And, you know, this again comes to the problem with talking about food, which is that it's all trade-offs all the time. And so, yeah, we can have a big win on land use and a big win on pesticides and a big win on water use, but that deal breaker energy problem really does put the kibosh on it a lot of the time. And from a financial standpoint, it puts the kibosh on, you know, the financial viability of these things. But from a climate standpoint, it's just a CO2 nightmare. Well, I do think it's worth mentioning that there are companies like Bright Farms, right, that are uh, that are building these these greenhouses, and they're bigger than vertical farms. Some of them are like maybe six acres, or you know, they might grow up to ten acres, and so it's just one layer because they're still using the sun, um, so they don't need as much energy. They still right. use still use a ton of energy because they're still fully automated, and they're still running, you know. A crop every two weeks or three weeks, and, um, and you still need you still need the climate control. So it's not that you know you you're getting getting out of grid energy free or anything. Vertical farming is two or three times the power needs of greenhouses, and there are places where greenhouses really are the norm. The Netherlands is a greenhouse powerhouse. They grow a whole bunch of vegetables and they're a big exporter, but they have access to geothermal energy, which is number one, affordable, and number two, doesn't have that climate downside. So, you know, Bright Farms is a really interesting company. It was actually started by a friend of mine. I went to college with him and now lived near him in, in Miami. His name's Ted Kaplow. And he's this real science, techie, innovator guy. Um, he had originally thought maybe we should, you know, try to grow lettuce on the roofs of Walmarts. Oh, whoa, 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 stop right there. I did not know that. And I don't think that Walmart is growing lettuces on their roofs. <laughs> what happened to that idea? It sounds pretty good. So it turned, it turned out that, uh, Walmarts are better for growing solar panels. And that if you want to grow greens, if you really want it to scale, you can't just put this little thing up on, on somebody's roof, even a big box roof. What they decided is they really needed to create these greenhouses. And these are 
big greenhouses. Some of them are like six acres. You know, they put them outside Chicago. Uh, There's one in between Columbus and Cincinnati. And so the idea is you're close to the markets. It's local food. You're still making all the savings with no pesticides. You're recycling your fertilizer. It's really great in so many ways. It still uses an awful lot of energy, but not quite as much as vertical farms because you're still using the sun. Um, It's a greenhouse. It's made of glass. It looks kind of cool. So Ted was very excited about this. They've got a great business. They're growing high-end, high-margin salad greens. Uh, They're starting to make money. Um, But Ted's a restless guy. He's a founder. And he was like, look, you know, we've solved the lettuce problem. You know, someday maybe we'll solve the strawberry problem. But we're never going to solve the food problem. And it's funny, the the board ended up forcing Ted out (laughs) because the board was like, no, we're going to make like a billion dollars solving the lettuce problem. But he's right, isn't he? We talk, we talk about climate. You know, we talk about farming. You know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of acres and all kinds of impacts. But lettuce is really like a, a rounding error. It, it's sort of the crux of the issue here. I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the the goal of the food system is to feed people. And they're isn't a lettuce problem. Because if lettuce went away completely, nothing bad would happen. But if people don't have bread, there's blood in the streets. Yeah, I I don't think people realize that, you know, you've got this huge indoor farming industry and it's doing great. So right now there's all this excitement about indoor farming. It's actually as big an industry now as the entire plant-based meat industry that we uh, talked about in our last episode. I think it's got about $5 billion in revenues. But so far, it's just a lettuce industry. And let's talk about lettuce. So yeah, these indoor farms are growing lettuce and lettuce is a stupid food. <laughs> stupid? Wait, wait, isn't isn't salad supposed to be a smart food? Isn't that like, you know, what all of us good boys and girls are supposed to eat when we're, you know, not being bad? One of my pet peeves about, like, the whole idea of the food system is that when people start thinking about food that's better, better for the planet or better for humans, they immediately go to salad. And of course, it's perfectly possible to have a nutrient-dense salad that's perfectly fine. But that's not what most salad is. Most salad is lettuce plus a bunch of stuff that's bad for you. And so lettuce itself, as you mentioned, it's it's 96% water. It is a vehicle to move refrigerated water from farm to table. It makes no sense at all, and it has very little nutrition. And, you know, if some lettuces are better than others, but one of the problems is you can't eat enough of it to, to make a meaningful nutritional dent in your day. So we've all had the experience of taking a big giant bag of spinach, which is a perfectly nutritious food, and sauteing it. And so what starts off as this giant bag becomes three tablespoons. I think and there was just a New Yorker cartoon about that, right? Where the, there where was. the yeah, she's, the woman pulls up with this gigantic wheelbarrow full of full of spinach, and she's like, "Well, I you know I don't I don't know if this is going to be enough for uh, for dinner tonight. We won't know until I saute it, right?" <laughs> See, so even the New, the New Yorker, which is not a food publication, is aware of this. That we've all had this experience, and so when you eat 
cooked spinach or cooked collard greens, you're getting a real vegetable. But when you're eating raw and you're eating a couple of cups of it, it's really nothing but, you know, a health halo. And I I wrote a column about this a number of years ago. And to do the illustration, we had people go around and buy salads from different chain restaurants. And once they got the salads in-house, they actually took the lettuce out of them because, of course, the lettuce is a non-entity, both calorie and and nutrition-wise. And what's left is what you're really eating. And it's a sad little pile of croutons and dressing and cheese and chicken strips. And that's how you should be visualizing a salad. Not this big green bowl of beautiful things, although it is possible to have a big green bowl of beautiful things. That is not the norm in a salad. Well, at least it's expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right, right. They make it up in volume. And so when we think about salad, I think we have to readjust how we think about it. So instead of being, like you said, this smart food, the thing that, you know, health conscious people eat, salad is a first world luxury. Because in a place and a time where people get too many calories, a food that has almost no calories is a boon. And I like having salad on my dinner table sometimes because I like the taste of it. And sometimes having salad prevents me from having, you know, a second serving of lasagna. Salad has its place, but it is a first world, expensive, luxury food, which is why these vertical farms, even when they grow some of the more nutritious foods like arugula, are not adding anything to our food system. They're just a vehicle for, you know, expensive baby lettuces for rich people. And I I should add that, you know, I grow oysters. I'm in favor of luxury products for rich people. But let's remember, that's what this is. Whether lettuce is, is, uh, you know, brilliant or stupid, as you say, I think what it's really important for people to understand is that it's, it's, really unimportant. There's just not much of it. I mean, you know, I think when people go to the farmer's market, which we also talked about, you know, you're surrounded by all your produce and you think like farmer, market, produce, that's what farms are. But that is not what farms are, right? Agricultural land, two thirds of it is pasture around the world. You know, it's cows walking around grazing. Um, And then one third of it is crops. And just about all of those crops are rice and corn and wheat and other grains that get actually mostly fed to livestock as well, but also fed to people. And that's the stuff that's important if we're talking about feeding the world. That's exactly the stuff that's important. And actually, they tried to grow wheat in an indoor environment. And it was a really interesting experiment because they grew a fair amount of it. And and they grew about 400 grand's worth at at the time. It was a few years back. But to grow $400,000 worth of wheat they had to use what would have cost at today's prices $75 million <laughs> in electricity. That's a 10 cents a kilowatt hour. And of course, that tells you it's not viable financially, but it should just tell you it's not viable period. Nobody's ever going to grow the foods that matter in vertical farms. Especially because those foods need to be cheap. Right. That's the, you know, that's the sort of beauty of how we feed the world is by keeping food cheap. 
That's true. And, you know, it's going to be an ongoing theme in this show that vegetables are not the answer. Almost no matter what the question is, the answer is those row crops that you mentioned. The answer is rice and wheat. And, you know, corn and soy get a bad name because Americans put them in cars and pigs and Twinkies. But these are the crops that can and staple crops in general do feed the world and they're not growing in vertical farms. But that raises a question. Okay, then what the hell good are vertical farms? If we've just established that, they, you know, they use a horrendous amount of energy and they grow frou-frou baby lettuce. You know, it's, what good are they? You know, it's funny. You know, now that we've been crapping on these farms, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from vertical farms um, and that actually can end up saving the world in a kind of bank shot sort of way. Oh, no. (laughs) All right. I don't know how far along you're going to get me with this, but I do want you to make the case for vertical farms. All right. So let me uh, tell you a story about my my favorite vertical farming company. It's called Aero Farms. They're the ones with the, uh, the downtown factory in Newark where they're churning out salad greens. And look, I think we've explained, you know, all kinds of reasons for our skepticism. And, you know, those vertical farms may turn out to be a bust. They were about to do one of those billion-dollar SPACs, and it just fell apart, which— Grand. Wait, what's a, what's a SPAC? You know, those are those, it's like doing an IPO where you go public, but uh, you don't actually use the public. You know, these are the, this is the new way of going public kind of. Oh, place, so it's a money raising thing. Skirting the SEC. But they were going to be valued at $1.2 billion and it fell apart because, you know, the market isn't very good right now. And maybe people were worried about the same energy stuff we're talking about. But here's an interesting thing about what's happening at Aero Farms. With all of their technology, with all of their imaging, with all their artificial intelligence, their machine learning, they are monitoring thousands of plants every second of every day, and they are learning more than anybody has ever learned about how plants grow. Um, You mean about how baby lettuce grows? Well, yeah. But that that is fair. Um, But they're learning about roots. They're learning about stems. (laughs) They're learning about leaves. They're learning all kinds of really cool stuff about light, about water, about fertilizer, about nutrients. And their plan is that they are going to try to export that knowledge out to the field where it's chaos where we actually really need to learn stuff. Um, so, so they're coming full circle. They're spending all this money to do all this infrastructure and sell all these lettuces to all those rich people so they can go back into the chaos? Well, I think they're, uh, they're already working with cacao farmers in Africa. They have a deal with a big tech company that, I, that I'm already forgetting um, where they're going to work together to try to export some of these technologies to, to people who need it. If you think of these farms as a farm, it's kind of hard to justify them. But if you think of them as laboratories, this is really exciting. I mean, if we're really serious about feeding the world without frying the world, and this is, as you know, this is what I bang my spoon on my high chair about all the time, we are going to need to grow things with better yields. We are going to need to grow things with less fertilizer. And that's what they're doing here. Now, right now, they're doing it with too much energy, so that's probably not going to work. But they are learning stuff And we need to learn things. I mean, that's the thing about agriculture is it's always been this sort of 
you know, slightly behind industry when it comes to technology. It's very slow to adapt because it's such a risky business. You know, people are very nervous to invest money in in technology that might not work. You know, the future of agriculture is going to need these kind of step changes, these kind of technological innovations, you know, where you're going to be able to kill pests without the nasty chemicals, where you're going to be able to double your yields without all the nasty fertilizer. Um, And this is, I think, a, a kind of hopeful, exciting sort of thing. So the case that you're making is that these are good because eventually they'll help outdoor farms. And I am wildly in favor of helping farmers, especially in the developing world. And so uh, I'm going to say that's a really good thing. And, you know, I can, it's not the only advantage I can see. There are places in the world where you cannot grow green things of any kind And all that stuff has to be flown in. So if you're talking about the high northern latitudes, if you could have one of these powered by some kind of of non-emitting source, and I I picture one of these little new generation nuclear reactors uh, powering an enormous— All right, you're joining me in tech world. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I am not anti-tech. You know that about me. And so I'm picturing this giant vertical farm with uh, with a little nuclear reactor feeding the essential amount of greenery to everybody above the Arctic Circle. I think there are going to be sort of idiosyncratic places where it's going to be. But my concerns about where it is right now and whether in the near term there's going to be anything resembling an, an energy grid that can power these in, in a way so that they're just not a carbon sasquatch means that I can't really get behind most of them here in the U.S. Well, I think we kind of agree that vertical farms are certainly not the answer to feeding the world and, you know, maybe not even that great an answer beyond our, our salad plates. And uh, and you don't even like salad, but I do but, like salad. But I want, <laughs> it's a first world luxury. You don't call it stupid. <laughs> but, yeah, okay, I can still like it. Fair enough. This, I like Bridgerton, and that's stupid too. <laughs> I do think that this entire conversation, from where it started to where it's gone, you know, the allure of vertical farms, the allure of all indoor farming is to try to solve the problems of outdoor farming. And really what vertical farms highlight is, you know, kind of how screwed we are with global agriculture in terms of its land use, in terms of its resource depletion, in terms of its impact on the environment and the climate. You know, you can understand why people are grasping for vertical farms because we're desperately in need of solutions for these other problems. And there's, there's no one thing that's going to do it. There's a bazillion people working on this problem of feeding people and feeding people responsibly and feeding people with minimal environmental impact. And all of these solutions are going to have pluses and minuses. No one is going to solve the problem because it's food and it's all trade-offs all the time. And it's, it's farming and field is chaos. As my husband always says, farming is an F-word. So is food. This is Climavores, a production of Postscript Media. 
We want to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking. We want to know what questions you have. So reach out to us. You can call us on the old-fashioned way on the phone because this is an audio show and we'd love to have your voice. Our phone number is 508-377-3449. Or you can also email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. We want to answer the best questions out there, so bring us your hard ones and maybe we can feature it on an upcoming show. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. The executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Cecily Mesa Martinez is the managing producer and Dalvin Abawaje is the associate producer. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc engineer the whole thing. Help us out. Spread the word. Give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Spotify. And send the link to all your friends. And come back next week when we'll have a new show for you. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing, and now media. To see Prelude's full portfolio and learn how it invests, go to preludeventures.com.